Amen. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, how true those words are, that you are a sure found foundation. So thankful, Lord, that our faith is built on your faithfulness, even in the midst of our faithlessness, as your scripture says. Lord, thank you that we have the, the privilege and the pleasure to gather together and worship you and to praise you. Um, and Lord, now as we turn this morning to your word, I pray that you would speak clearly, um, that you would speak through me. Lord, just aware this morning of um, how in need I am of you, I'm dependent on you. So, Lord, I boast in my weakness this morning and ask that your strength would be made perfect, that your grace would be sufficient, and that we would yield our lives to your word, not in my opinion, to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, go ahead and have a seat for me this morning. Well, good morning. Um, let me go ahead and tell you, uh, for all of you over here, um, we have twos and three-year-olds in nurseries right behind that wall right there. I don't know if you were aware of that. We have a gap in that wall that we couldn't fix this morning, so... Um, Maybe you'll sit, next, sit over here next week. Um, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to Acts, um, kind of a, as I get set up this morning. Um, my name is Andrew McClure. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And um, man, last week was encouraging. If you're new to us, last week was our, our first Sunday, our launch Sunday. It was uh, really encouraging, really exciting, and incredibly exhausting. Um, I, I got home, and my four-year-old daughter wanted to watch Frozen for the billionth time, and um, I fell asleep on the couch. It was amazing. Um, but excited to be with you again this morning. If you weren't here with us, let me tell you quickly that um, by, by every Monday afternoon, we hope to have our sermons on our website. Um, so you can go to cbcrichmondhill.com, find our sermons. You can kind of keep up with where we are. Um, and that's important for a variety of reasons. It's important for our volunteers. We only have one service. So all of those who are serving currently in our kids' discipleship, you know, they, they want to be able to hear the sermon. But it's also important because here at CBC, we preach through books of the Bible. Um, so instead of it being topical, instead of every Monday me coming up with kind of what I think God wants to speak to us this morning, we, we preach through books of the Bible. Um, so this week, we're just going to pick up right where we left off last week. So if you missed last week, you can go back and listen to that sermon online. So just wanted to make sure you're aware of that. But let me, let me remind us of where we were last week before we look at Acts chapter 1, verse 4 this week. So if you want to go ahead and turn with me, you can. To Acts chapter 1, we're going to be in verse 4 to verse 11 today. Um, but last week, we remember, if you remember, that the Gospel of Luke was actually volume one of Luke's two-volume series. So Luke wrote the book of Acts, which is volume two. He also wrote the Gospel according to Luke, which is volume one. And we saw in the first couple verses of Acts chapter one that, that Luke was all about what Jesus began to do and to teach. So volume one is all about what Jesus began to do and to teach. Whereas the, God, the book of Acts is all about what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach, specifically through his church, through his people. They're filled with his spirit, living on purpose for himself. But what we saw is if the church is really going to become a movement, if we're going to really, really stop viewing the church as something that we attend, an event that we attend, instead begin to see scripturally that it's a movement. It's a movement of people filled by his spirit, living on mission for him. Jesus knew that his disciples, before that movement could begin, they needed to go through a transformation. There had to be some kind of a radical shift that happened in their lives because the gospel of Luke ends with the disciples hiding. I mean, they, they were cowardly. They were fearful. They had, they had denied Christ. They had run from Christ. They were reluctant. They were confused. They were really trying to figure some things out, and that's how Luke kind of ends. So if they're going to become a movement that turns the world upside down, something had to happen. And we saw in the first three verses last week that two things Jesus did for them. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, a, in order to prove the truth of his resurrection, to prove that he was alive, and B, to continue to teach them, 
to open up their minds to see that the scriptures actually testified that he would come. He would save people from their sins and ultimately rise again. So we saw that last week in the first three verses. Today, we're actually going to turn to his last appearance. So what did Jesus do in his last moment when he was physically present with his disciples? And what we're going to actually see is that um, it's, it's Luke's thesis statement. How many of you, your palms just started sweating immediately when I said thesis statement? You went back to your number two pencils, you're getting really nervous. If you're still in school, you probably feel the same way. Just relax. I'm going to explain to us what, what I mean here by thesis statement. Um, not many people know, but um, I, I love sports. Um, I'm going to talk about that a lot. Love sports. Um, was, a, was an athlete in high school, and if you look at me and you think he's not even 5'8 with his hair gelled up straight, you're just a bunch of sizes. You can be athletic and small. My mom's in the room. She used to tell me dynamite comes in small packages. So that, that was her way of encouraging me. Um, but, but love sports. Um, and, but what people didn't know about me in high school, although I tried to really present my self-image and my identity as an athlete, is that I love school. Like, actually liked high school. Uh, went to class, enjoyed class, couldn't say the same about my first year at UGA. But in high school, I loved class, loved learning, enjoyed math, um, but loved literature. Uh, still love literature, enjoy reading the classics. But in high school, when you read the classics or you read whatever books assigned to you, you can't read that for pleasure because inevitably what comes at the end of that book? Yeah, an exam or an essay, a book report, something is coming in. If you had a good high school literature teacher like I did, you learned that the secret to writing that paper is what? It's a thesis. It's a good thesis statement. So let me remind us all of what a thesis statement is. Thesis statement is a sentence that states the main idea of a writing assignment and helps control the ideas within the paper. It summarizes the main point of the entire work and then is developed, supported, and explained throughout the duration of the text with examples and evidence. That's what we're going to see in Luke chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. We're going to see Luke's statement, uh, thesis statement. We're going to see a main idea or a core idea that is summarized, but then is used to be developed and supported throughout the remainder of the text. That's what we have. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a roadmap for our sermon this morning. I'm going to talk about two things in this thesis statement. The first is that Christ gives them a commission and then reminds them of his provision. Okay, so all you type A note takers out there, that's for you. Okay. Commission and provision. Let's open up the word this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I do want to remind you that we have one for you. Just as you, as you leave today, there, there's a table right out to the left. That gra grab a Bible, take it home. It can be yours. We want the word of God in your hands. want it in your head. We want it in your heart. So if you have your Bible, turn with me. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taking up, taken up from heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's our text for today. And what we're going to see is Luke's thesis statement, the thesis statement of the entire book of Acts. And the first thing I want to call our attention to is the commission. 
We'll talk about this for, for about a half of our time. We're going to look at the commission that Christ gave his disciples. And before we look there, we have to remember, those disciples, y'all, they just couldn't get it. At the end of volume one, these disciples were confused and they were hiding because their expectations of what the king of Israel would do was totally obliterated. Their expectation for the kingdom of God was, was what? Anybody remember from last week, brownie points? No, nobody has the courage. I see. It was to be a physical reality. They thought the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Israel would be a physical, nationalistic, or mono-ethnic kingdom that, that Jesus would bring on a white horse with a sword on his side. That he would be entering into Jerusalem with a crown of gold, but instead of that, we saw last week he got a crown of thorns. The kingdom that he brought was not a physical, nationalistic kingdom. It was a spiritual reality. But these guys were so dense, they just couldn't understand it, even to the point of his last appearance with them. In verse 6, they ask, is this it? Is this the time? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? But look what Jesus responds with. He doesn't necessarily deny that Israel would one day be restored, but what, is, what does he do? He says, it's not for you to know this. These things are fixed by the Father's authority. This isn't for you. Here's the point. He rejects their speculations and then begins in verse 8 to bring their attention to what is actually real and relevant for them at that moment. Let me say it again. He rejects speculations, endless speculations that aren't going to profit anything, and then bring their attention to the actual commission that he's going to give them in verse 8. And that's a good word for us today. Because as, as we're trying to figure out and rediscover what is the church and what, are, what is our role in the church, it is so easy for us to get bogged down in speculations, right? To, to argue and, and to, to try to find points about various items of theology that we are just really to hold open-handedly. Y'all, there's a lot of mystery in our faith as we follow the Father. And there's some things we're not going to know because he's just fixed them in his own wisdom and his own authority and his own timing. One day you'll get to know, but that day you're not even going to care, right? You're going to be in his glory, in his presence forever. And we, we get so caught up in this speculation and it distracts us from what he has for us, what the purpose is. And this is the commission. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All right, let's break down this commission. First thing we're going to see is, is what the purpose of it is. What is it? It's a call to witness. It is a commission to be witnesses. Again, this is the thesis. We're going to see this central idea play itself out through the entire book of Acts, that Jesus would continue to move and to work and propagate his gospel through the witnessing of his people. That Greek word witness is martus. It conveys this idea of you being called to the witness stand in court in order to testify to the truth of something. This is what they're going to do. We see this word pop up in Acts 1, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 5, Acts 10, all the way to when Paul's standing in Rome before Caesar, he is testifying. He is witnessing. But what is he a witness of? What is his commission to be a witness of? Go back to verse 8. You will be my witnesses. Our commission as the body of Christ is to be a witness to the person and the work of Jesus. Simply put, it's to be a witness of the gospel. That word gospel means the good news about Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection to patiently walk with them, to patiently explain and to teach and further their understanding of what the gospel actually is because they had to get this right. They had to get the, the message of the gospel right, to be consistent in the foundation of the gospel because his plan would be to use them as their witnesses. They needed that message to be solid, that foundation to be solid. Why? Paul would say it's because the church is actually built on the foundation of these apostles' witnesses. 
Read Ephesians 2 with me. So then you who are, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles. The message of the apostles, the witnessing of the apostles to the life and the work of Jesus Christ would be the foundation for us today. It's the foundation that we are building this church on. Our family, um, we love to watch America's Funniest Home Videos. It still exists. Still exists. You know, it blows my mind, I guess because we keep doing hilarious things and send them in in an effort to get money. But anyway, we watch America's Funniest Home Videos, and inevitably at the end of every episode, our kids try to like reenact what they saw. You know, that's probably the best part for us as a family, just to, to watch this. But there was a 30-second clip last week. Where we, were, we were watching AFV. This 30-second clip just started running, and it was uh, 30 seconds of utter failure. Um, families trying to get their ATVs onto the back of their pickup trucks and just failing to secure the, the ATV ramps, you know, to get them up there. And, and ATV ramps is really misleading because they didn't have any. You know, it's just this redneck engineering. Any way possible you could try to get these ATVs on the back of their trucks is what they did. And it was just 30 seconds of failure rolling off, you know, shooting through the back glass of their truck. And, 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 no, and if that happened to you, that's horrible. You know, but for us, entertaining and hilarious as we watch AFV. But as I was thinking about, like, if we don't get the message of the gospel right, that's really what we have. Like, that clip becomes the church when we're not secure and confident on the foundation of the gospel. When the church isn't built on the faithful eyewitnessing of the apostles to the life and the work of Christ, we get a shaky church, a broken church, a 30-second clip of just these failures. Secondly, the apostles had to be solid on this foundation because Jesus taught and is continuing to teach through his word that false teachers will arise. Right? He constantly said, you better be right on the gospel because there's going to be other teachers that come in and teach a false gospel. Jesus said it in Matthew 24, for false Christ's uh, and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray even the elect. We see the apostles constantly battling this through the epistles. Paul writes to Timothy, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We'll see this much later in the book of Acts, but when Paul um, gathers together the elders of the church of Ephesus, he commands them with this. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. There's going to be false teachers. There's going to be false gospels. That's why we, the, the apostles had to be secure on what the message they were to be witnesses of was. That's why we have to be secure. As we're planting a new church, we have to build the church on the foundation of the gospel. Paul would say in Corinthians, that as a church planner, he says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, as an apostle, as a church planter, he says, I laid the foundation. That foundation is the gospel, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care then how he builds on it. We have got to be careful as a, as a new church plant that we are building this church on the foundation of the gospel. So, so what is that? What is that message? What is that primary message that we are to be witness of? It's the fact. It's the good news. That word gospel just means good news. It's the good news that you and I were created to be in relationship with God, that your purpose is to live in such a way that you just know him and honor him and glorify him and enjoy him forever. But the bad news of that is that not just Adam and Eve, all of us, have sinned. We've fallen short of God's standard. And what is the consequence of that sin? Death. 
physical death, but also spiritual death. Separation from the presence of God. The relationship that we are created to have, broken. But the greatest news of all is that God so loved the world. We all know this one, right? It's probably what they're learning across the hall. We memorize God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to pay the penalty for your sins so that your relationship to God can be restored. Y'all, he lived a life we couldn't live, sinless, and then died a death that you and I deserve so that we can be back in relationship with the Father. That's the gospel. That's the foundation to which the church has to be built on, and that's the foundation that the apostles had to be eyewitnesses of. They had to be uh, secure and confident on that foundation. So Jesus commissions his apostles with the purpose to witness. The second thing I want to talk about that commissioning is, is the scope of it. Where were they to be witnesses? Where were they called to be witnesses? Well, Acts 1.8 says, In Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I'm tired of me saying this, but, but this is the thesis. This is the whole book of Acts summarized in one sentence. Because what we see throughout the book of Acts is this actually being developed and playing out. The apostles become witnesses in Jerusalem, Acts 2 to chapter 7. They become witnesses to Judea and Samaria, Acts chapters 8 to 13. They become witnesses to the ends of the earth, chapters 13 all the way to the end of the book, to where God's story is continuing, where we are now commissioned to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's what we see in the book of Acts. But what does that mean for us? I'm going to answer that really quickly. What is Jerusalem for us? Jerusalem is where they were then. It's where they were when they got their commission. It's where they were when the Holy Spirit fell on them to empower them for this commission. It's where we are today. The question for us as we talk about Jerusalem is, do you view yourself as someone who is sent or commissioned by God to be his witnesses where you are today? Do you believe that God can sovereignly and divinely place you exactly where you are today for this purpose? It's your neighborhood, where, where you live, Buckhead, Buckhead East, Buckhead North. At, at one point after the service, someone please tell me how many Buckheads there are in Richmond Hill. We're still new. We're still trying to figure this out. I am so sick and tired of figuring it out. Buckhead, whatever Buckhead you're in, that's where God has you. That's, that's where you're supposed to be. The, the Commons, Mulberry, uh, all the neighborhoods, Richmond Hill Plantation, Fort Stewart, Hinesville, Midway, Berwick. Where is it that God has placed you? Do you view yourself as a witness there? It's where you grocery shop. It's where your kids play sports, Henderson Duval or Timber Trail. Are you going to those events, viewing yourself as someone who is sent, someone who is witnessing for the sake of Christ? Actually, that's a, a little bit of a misleading question because the truth is we're, we're all witnesses of something. We're all witnessing to something. The question then is, are we actually his witnesses? Are we going to these places to witness to Christ? Because church, that's your job. That's, that's the job of a Christian is to share Christ with others. The church is a movement, and to be a part of a movement, you got to what? you got to move. we gotta, we got to do something. We have to embrace our commission to our Jerusalem. But what about Judea and Samaria? Judea is just the suburbs. It's the surrounding area of Jerusalem, Samaria as well. But what's interesting about Samaria is that's where the half-breeds lived. Jews didn't like the Samaritans. They, they knew they were people of Israel, but they weren't true Jews. They weren't really true Jews of the promise. In fact, people would say, historians would say that Jews would often walk hundreds of miles around Samaria so they wouldn't have to cross through Samaria. So they wouldn't have to walk, uh, rub shoulders with the Samarians, I mean, Samaritans. But you know who didn't do that? Jesus. You read through the Gospels, Jesus walked through Samaria. He engaged Samaritans. And here's the point. When he commissions us to Samaria, he's telling his disciples to drop their racial and their ethnic bias to be witnesses for the sake of Christ. 
That commission at that time would have been socially, economically, and ethnically unheard of. So the question for us then is, are we? Are we willing to engage people who don't look like you, act like you, talk like you, come from the same background as you for the sake of Jesus? And if, if, you, if you can't answer that with a yes, then there's a couple things there. A, we're in disobedience to the message of Jesus. B, we're going to hate heaven. Because heaven's going to be full of every tribe, nation, and tongue. It's going to be a beautiful, beautiful thing. It says Samaria, are you willing to get uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel? And then finally, he says to the ends of the earth. What's the scope? To the ends of the earth. Now, unless you're a flat earth person, you know, and you don't need to raise your hand, please. What you know about the ends of the earth is, is that that's just a metaphor. There is no proverbial end to the earth. It's just a metaphor. It means everywhere. That we are commissioned to be Christ's witnesses everywhere. Now, in the book of Acts, not everybody was called to cross a culture to learn a different language in order to propagate the gospel in those areas. Not everybody was called there. And likewise for us, that's the same for us. Not every one of you is going to be called to go to a different country in order to share the gospel there. But some of you will. Some of you might be. But the question all of us have to be asking is, are we willing? Are we willing to lay aside what we have here in order to go there? Because that's the commission that God has called us to. The truth is, there's still about 3.3 billion people in the world who have very little to no access to the gospel. That's an injustice. Somebody has to go. In Corinthians, Paul would write, He who died, died once for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for he who died. Do you hear that? If you've been bought and purchased by Christ, your life is no longer your own. You need to be willing to lay that down for the sake of the gospel. So, that's the commission. But the next thing I want us to see is the provision. What is the provision that he gives us? Because it's clearly here in our text today. Acts 1, 4 through 5. While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Acts 1, verse 8, again, our thesis statement. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What we're clearly going to see here in this provision is that power has to be provided. Before we can launch into our commission, power must precede that purpose. And what is that power? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the, it's the third person of the Trinity. It's the Holy Spirit. But the first thing I want to call our attention to in the provision of the Holy Spirit is that it was promised. The provision of the Holy Spirit was promised. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, when in the fulfillment of a prophecy of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit falls on the apostles. The Spirit was promised in the Old Testament. But we see it in the New Testament too. When John was out baptizing people in the Jordan River and people really thought he was the Christ, maybe he's the anointed one, maybe he's the king, they asked him, are you the one? John answered them and said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will. There's someone coming who's mightier who will. There's a promise there. It's going to happen. Jesus really ramped up his teaching about the Holy Spirit in, in the upper room discourse. John chapter 13 to chapter 17, he gives some of his deepest teachings, and he talks about the Holy Spirit specifically in 14, 15, and 16. And I'm going to read a couple of those scriptures for us. Jesus says to his disciples before he dies, I'm going to one who sent me. I'm going to ascend. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. 
But verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Do you see the promise that Jesus makes in this provision? He is going to send the Holy Spirit. But how does he come? How does the Holy Spirit come? What's the words used to describe in Scripture when the Holy Spirit descends on his people? It's a a baptism. Just as John baptized you with water, just as he immersed you and saturated you in water, so then you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. You'll be saturated. You'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to talk about that for just a second. What does that mean? What does it mean to be baptized in this Holy Spirit? Because apart from the doctrine of election and predestination, I'm unsure of a doctrine that is as divisive as the role and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you who are new to church or trying to figure out may be surprised by that, but there are are camps that, and and again, there's so many doctrinal issues that we hold open-handed, right, that we don't have to necessarily agree on as long as it's not a doctrine of salvation. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, many people believe that it's, uh, it's an exclusive event that it's for a select few, it's for those who hunger and thirst enough for it, that it's for the spiritual elite camp. So then what we have in the church is we have Christians, and then we have spirit-filled Christians. Or many believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that happens apart from conversion. It happens after you place your faith in Christ and believe in the repentance of your sins, that it may happen much later in life. But I want to speak into those really quickly and hopefully provide some clarity on how we should think of the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit. The first I want to say is is that this is not exclusive. The filling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not exclusive. Because in Acts chapter 2, when Peter gives his powerful preaching on the day of Pentecost, this is how he concludes his sermon. He says, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, there's that promise again, promise of the Holy Spirit is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It is for you. The Holy Spirit is for you. Everyone who repents and puts their faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is for you. The second thing I want to speak into is is that this is not a separate event from, from conversion. The filling of the Holy Spirit happens at conversion. Now, if you know your Bibles, you immediately want to engage me in an argument, and you're going to try to bring my attention to Acts chapter 19. Paul comes up to some disciples at Ephesus. He meets these disciples, and he asks them this question. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. We've never heard of the Holy Spirit. And John says, then what were you baptized into? They said, we were baptized into John's baptism. Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people. John came to prepare the way, right? He's telling people, there's someone coming after me who's mightier than me. He's the one that will save you. He says, that's Jesus. Verse 5, and on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on him, the Holy Spirit came upon them. So what's going on here? What's going on is these people had not been converted that they had heard about this Messiah that was to come. They had heard about this John who was baptizing people in preparation for this Messiah. They didn't know he had come. They didn't know he had actually come to give his life and to pay the penalty for our sins that we can have faith and eternal life in his name. So Paul explains that to them, baptizes them in the name of the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Here's how I want us to think of the Holy Spirit. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I want you to think about chocolate milk. You did not expect me to say that, did you? not trying to be blasphemous, but it's just a good illustration, okay? I want us to think about chocolate milk. When you think about being filled with the Holy Spirit, think about chocolate milk. Your life is a tall glass of cold milk. Not almond, not soy, okay? Cow's milk. 
tall glass of milk is your life. When you repent of your sins and you put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit fills your life in that moment, just like that chocolate syrup would go into that milk. The Holy Spirit fills your life. And when stirred up by faith and when accompanied by spiritual disciplines and you begin to grow in your faith, what happens to that milk when it's stirred? It changes. It changes. And just as the Holy Spirit fills your life and stirs your life, you change to look less like yourself and to look more like who? Jesus. That's the role of the Holy Spirit, to fill your life so that you can look like Christ. But we have to be very, very careful because the Scriptures also teach us that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, that we can quench the Holy Spirit, that we can resist the Holy Spirit in our lives. And all three of those things are just like leaving that milk over there overnight. And you wake up the next morning, and you come and you look at that milk, and all that chocolate has moved right back down to the bottom of that glass. It's no longer stirred up. It's no longer looking changed. It's no longer transformed. It's a life without power. Are you saved? Sure. Sealed with the Holy Spirit? Sure. But not stirred up. Not looking like Jesus. Not tapping into the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. So I wanted to share that real, real quickly, that for us to, to, to perform this commission, we have got to receive his provision. We have got to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's exactly what it is. It's a, it's a provision that was promised, and it's also a provision of power. Power. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you are given power. Now, half of the room just got unbelievably uncomfortable. Right? When we start talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, we get really uncomfortable. We love the Father, love the Son, love the Holy Bible. You know, but we start talking about the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, we get really, really uncomfortable. But then there's another half of the room that goes, all right, preacher, let's go. Let's talk about the power. Let's, start, let's start bring out the shofars. You know, get our banner out. Bring the oils out. We start moving in that direction, thinking the power is like lightning coming out of our hands. And they don't make joke at both of those, but, but I don't think we're too far off from our experience with the Holy Spirit. It's either one or the other. But I think both of those reveal a misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit. What is the power? What actually is the power of the Holy Spirit? To know that, we need to know what the purpose of the Holy Spirit is. Okay? Let's go back to John chapter 15 and 16. Jesus says, When the Helper comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, what will he do? What does the Holy Spirit do? He'll bear witness about Jesus. He'll point people to Jesus. He says it in the next chapter, chapter 16. He will glorify me, but he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. He will glorify Jesus. The Holy Spirit's primary role is to bring attention to the person and the work of Christ, which is if we're going to do that, if we're going to be witnesses, don't you think we should tap into the power of God in order to be those witnesses? That's the primary role of the Holy Spirit, to bring witness to Jesus. So often, I wonder if we aren't experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives is because we're not living in such a way to bring attention and glory to Jesus, right? We're quenching him because we're living in a way to bring attention to ourselves. So what does that power look like? We're empowered to be his witnesses by the Holy Spirit in two ways. The first is with our lives. He empowers us to witness about Jesus with our lives, so that the life we live reflects the life of Jesus. So when people look at your life, do they see Jesus? Y'all, this is real power. We think often that power needs to be something spectacular, but you don't know what power is. Power is when you are alone and you're self-loathing and you feel the temptation to gravitate towards pornography and you can resist it. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit is when you get that horrible diagnosis and that pit wells up in your stomach and you don't know how you're going to get through this and you lean into the promises of God and you begin to suffer with hope. 
That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Power's ability to forgive your enemies, to bless those who persecute you, to love your enemies. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. You know how radical that is? When your spouse is, is mistreating you, even verbally abusing you, and you can respond with gentleness. Y'all, that's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power to defeat Satan when he tempts us with lies. It's the, it's just the, it's the same spirit that empowered Jesus to resist uh, Satan in the wilderness. That's the power that we need. We need power in order to witness for Jesus with our lives. Second, though, we need, to, we need his power to witness with our lips. That's part of being a witness, y'all. We've got to open up our mouths. We have to proclaim the glory of Jesus, the person and the work of Christ. Every time the Spirit fills someone in the New Testament, the immediate reaction to that is someone proclaiming the glory of God. When John the Baptist was prophesied to be filled with the Spirit before his birth, it says that he will be filled with the Spirit, Luke 1.15, and proclaim the coming of the Lord. Elizabeth, being filled with the Spirit, Luke 1.41, proclaimed a blessing over Mary. Luke 1.67, Zechariah, being filled with the Spirit, prophesied about the coming of Jesus. Acts 2.4, we're going to see this in a few weeks. The Spirit fills the apostles that begin to proclaim God in multiple languages. Acts 4.8, Peter is filled with the Spirit and preaches to the rulers that Jesus is the only hope of salvation. Acts 9.20, Paul is filled with the Spirit and immediately begins preaching Christ in the synagogues. Is this you? Assess yourself. Are you regularly proclaiming the person and the work of Jesus? Because that's what the Holy Spirit's role in, in, inside of you is, to empower you to do that. And you all know the excuses. I, I feel them. They're true of me as much as they're true of you. I, I don't know how. I don't, feel, I don't want to be a weirdo. You know, how do I even bring Jesus up into these conversations? I don't have the gift of evangelism, right? We have these excuses, and I feel them too, but, but the point of all those excuses is that it reveals that we're depending on ourselves, that we're leaning into our own power in order to, to do Christ's commission when he's given you the power to overcome those excuses. Stop depending on yourself. Lean into the person of the Holy Spirit. He will bring Christ um, to the forefront with your lips. So that's what we're to be witness of with our lives and with our lips. So he's given us this commission, and then he's promised this provision. And I want to bring our attention just kind of back to that chocolate milk. Maybe the reason we're not experiencing his power is because we've let it settle. Maybe we've quenched the Holy Spirit through habitual sin. Maybe we've resisted the Holy Spirit in our lives because we want to be in control, right? We don't want him dictating where we go or how we live. We want to be in control, so we've quenched it and resisted. Maybe we've grieved the Holy Spirit because instead of living our life to make most of Jesus, we're living our lives to make most of ourselves, concerned with our own careers, our own stuff, our own reputations, and we've forgotten that the less that Jesus is at the core of our lives or our witness, the less power we will experience. If we want to tap into the provision of the power of the Holy Spirit, we've got to live for him. We need his power. I don't want anybody to think, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to work on my own strength. I'm going to do this thing and leave the power of God beside. That's not, you're missing the point. To, to perform this commission, we need his provision. Let me conclude by sharing something that's pretty humiliating personally. Up until about a year ago, I'd never owned a single power tool. Okay, go ahead, get it out. You know, <laughs> Lived overseas for 10 years, okay? Cost of labor was pretty cheap. They needed the money. I never had to learn to do anything. About a year ago, before we moved down here, we were living in Athens, Georgia, greatest city on earth, go dogs. And um, we had to move down here um, to Richmond Hill, and we had one of those outdoor play sets, you know, the swings, the slides, all, all those things. And um, it took me about removing three panels of that till I'd had enough. Screwdriver, three panels. And I was like, this is going to take me six years to get rid of this thing. Drove to Home Depot, bought me a little bag of power tools, felt like Tim Allen, pretty amazing. There are power tools in there. I have no idea what to do with them. Someone can help me learn. But I had a drill. 
Man, it took me about 30 minutes to knock that thing out. It was amazing. Not only was it a great feeling, but y'all, it helped me accomplish the purpose efficiently. And that's the role of the power of the Holy Spirit. We need his provision to accomplish that commission. So we conclude for us this morning by bringing our attention to the last bit of our text. Jesus gives them this commission. He, he promises this provision, and then he ascends. He disappears. He's walking with them, and he goes up into heaven. Read with me in verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. They said, this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's a really interesting point of this, this Greek word gazing. As they're gazing into heaven, as they're staring intently into heaven, it's almost like a, a balloon is fading into the horizon, and, and you're looking so desperately to see if it will reappear. And that was the hope of the apostles. Jesus had been appearing, disappearing, reappearing for 40 days. He disappears. Their expectation is he'll come back. We'll see him again. So they're staring intently, and in a, in like an unspoken prayer request of when he'll return, the angels answer. said, he's gone, but he will come back. Just as you saw him go, he will come back. Just as he had promised his initial coming, promised the provision of the Holy Spirit, he promises a return. Meaning this, y'all, in between his ascension and his inevitable return, we've got a job to do. There's a commission for us, and there's a provision for us to accomplish it. It's almost like these angels are saying, what are you standing around for? To stop staring into heaven, get moving. You're a movement. You're a movement that's going to turn the world upside down. You need to get going. I'll close by, by reading this by John Stott. It's really simple, really good conclusion for this thesis statement for us. John Stott once wrote, the angels were telling his apostles it's time to be his witnesses, not stargazers. It's time to be his witnesses, not stargazers. And that's our prayer for us as a church. So let me pray for us and pray that we would be a church that embraces his commission through the power of his provision. Father, we love you. And we're so thankful that you not only save us, not only redeem us, not only um, give us new life and a new heart in order to follow you, but you give us purpose. Lord, so often in our lives, we're, we're, we're just lacking purpose, lacking to know how we're to live, how we're to do. But Lord, I pray that your word would speak clearly this morning that you've given us a purpose. You've given us a commission to make much of you with our lives and with our lips to point people to you, Jesus. It's a worthy way to spend our lives. But Lord, don't let us do it in our own strength. We thank you for your provision, that it was promised, that it's power. And God, as a weak, broken vessel, I know we, we need you, Holy Spirit. We need your power to look like Jesus. We don't want to grieve you. We don't want to resist you. We don't want to quench you. We want to live in the Spirit, not in the flesh. But we need your help to do it. So give us the power to live the life of Christ. Give us the power to open up our lips about the life of Christ. And may we be part of this movement that will continue to turn the world upside down. In Jesus' name, amen.